Hello and welcome to the Future of Australia podcast. Here I interview the entrepreneurs running the fastest growing businesses in Australia. These interviews will be around the themes of entrepreneurship, new ideas, business, innovation, capitalism and successful enterprise being the motor that will drive Australia forward. I will be telling the stories of the people who are making it possible and as they grow and strive further will become a bigger and bigger part of Australia's future. My name is Derek Stewart, your host and the founder of Future of Australia. Check us out at futureofaustralia.com to learn more, subscribe to our newsletter, get exclusive content and ensure you never miss an episode. For questions or comments, email me at derek, D-E-R-E-K, at futureofaustralia.com or you can call or text me on 0404-689-897. Welcome to episode 19 of the Future of Australia podcast. In this episode, I interview Dimitri Zemmer, the founder and CEO of Law Squared, a law firm focused on entrepreneurial and fast growth clients. We discuss how his childhood dream to become a diplomat resulted instead in becoming an insurance lawyer, how he spent a decade starting, running, selling and closing six different businesses on the side with his friends to try and escape his day job as a lawyer, how he then went all in, quit his day job and grew Law Squared rapidly into a 1.6 million turnover business and became one of the fastest growing new law firms in Australia. If you are an entrepreneur looking for a law firm run by an entrepreneur or a lawyer looking to work for a modern firm focused on both client and employee satisfaction without timesheets and billable targets, check out lawsquared.co. That's L-A-W-S-Q-U-A-R-E-D dot C-O. So I'm here with uh, Dimitri Zemmer, the founder and CEO of Law Squared. Welcome to the podcast. Cheers. Thanks for having me. That's all right. So can you tell us a bit about what you were doing before you started Law Squared? What did you study? What sort of companies did you work in? What roles? Yeah, yeah cool. So um, I studied law and international relations at La Trobe University. Um, I was there for... Uh, just under five years. Um, I did pretty speedy degree to kind of get myself out of there. Um, I then went and did an internship with the Australian Embassy to the Holy See in Italy mm-hmm. um, for six months and never really wanted to be a lawyer. Um, I kind of came back wanting to be a diplomat and mm-hmm. joined Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. Uh, but as luck would have it, I didn't get through their application process and instead applied for what we call kind of traineeship or articles, um, which is through practical legal training at Leo Cusson. I did that, then got a job uh, as a lawyer and kind of never really applied for that DFAT journey ever again. I uh, got a job as an insurance litigator, which is a very exciting job, um, working with a lot of insurers for a number of years. Uh, and then decided that I wanted out of insurance and into more commercial type work. So I left that and joined a commercial litigation firm doing a lot of large scale dispute work. Um, but whilst uh, in both those businesses, uh, those law firms, I had started a number of other businesses. So um, I never really loved being a lawyer. So um, I thought if I could make some money in business, then that might help me getting out of being a lawyer. Um, but as we know, entrepreneurship is never uh, a linear journey. And uh, six companies later, <laughs> um, and quite a bit of money lost and some money made, um, I suppose, kind of leads me now to Wall Squared. 
Yeah, so I mean, that's really quite a journey, starting with the biggest institutions of all, government and federal international sort of government, yeah. and then going to sort of smaller you know, enterprise, a large side of business, and then into starting your own business, sort of going to full scale. So I don't know many young people that want to be sort of diplomats. Yeah. Um, when and how did you sort of first want to get into that type of work? Yeah, I suppose through studying law and international relations, uh, I really like the international relations aspect of mm-hmm. it. Um, and thought behind negotiating international treaties was exciting. Um, Having met and then worked with um, some ambassadors uh, overseas, I found that their job was a really exciting one, Um, being able to represent Australia, um, both the negotiation style style of uh, foreign affairs, but also um, just the kind of public life, I suppose, Mm -hmm. of the events you get to hold and go to and the people you get to meet um, was always uh, a kind of really exciting opportunity. but it's a very hard role to ever get into. Um, DFAT chooses the best of the best and has some uh, exceptional candidates that apply for it each year. And I was probably a little bit uh, arrogant uh, (laughs) in thinking that I would get in first go. Um, But, yeah, it it is an odd inspiration to have, I suppose, aspiration to have um, growing up, but it was definitely one that I was pretty keen on, yeah. And and did you ever consider politics as a different side of that coin? Did consider politics, um, but uh, it's such a public... Uh, and unfortunately, we don't have the best political uh, environments in Australia. And so, therefore, I suppose, take into consideration both sides of politics, but also where I saw my future. Um, politics, uh, probably not where my best skill set would be. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting, like you say, because the ambassadors and high-ranking diplomats mm. have a huge amount of power, but most people don't wouldn't be able to name one foreign yeah. ambassador. Yeah. Um, so, it's a sort of very powerful, but it's also private within Australia because, you know, they're overseas representing Australia. So, it's, yeah. yeah, it's definitely an interesting side of politics if you had to end up in that. But. Yeah, it's only the... Because um, they're obviously career diplomats or they're mm-hmm. political appointments. So, um, political appointments, you know, like Joe Hockey, for example, um, or uh, who else? There's a number of cr- political diplomats. So, Tim Fisher, who was the ambassador that I worked for, mm. former Deputy Prime Minister of Australia, Minister for Trade, um, he was a political appointment, whereas most of... The other kind of great appointments are actually career diplomats, so those who go through the DFAT grad program, you know, work in uh, embassies or consulates uh, across the world, and then, you know, go up the ranks uh, to head of mission. Yeah, it's pretty mm. exciting. Yeah. Yeah, and, and so you mentioned you were working in big enterprise law, um, and then you started sort of little businesses on the side, but a lot of them didn't really sort of take off. Can yeah. you talk us through some of those first businesses that you yeah, started? Yeah, sure. So um, one of the first was with a group of friends, uh, and that was a um, social enterprise consulting type business um, that was very much in the early stages of social enterprise here mm-hmm. in Australia. No one really quite understood the concept behind social enterprise. That was about 10 years ago now. Um, which doesn't sound like a long time ago, but if you think of how far social enterprises mm. have you know, um, progressed over that time, we now have over 20,000 social enterprises, um, which is huge. Um, mm. So that was one of my first. Um, and then got into um, healthy food vending. And what sort of happened yeah. with that, though? You just weren't able to get the clients? You weren't yeah, we, able we to did some really big projects. To... Yeah, so we worked with two very large clients mm-hmm. in that space. We did two really great pieces of work. But then we really struggled with support and we really needed kind of government buy-in uh, and not-for-profit buy-in, but neither of them really appreciated what the true essence of social enterprise was. Um, there's still a bit of a roadblock behind 
how can you do something for a profit? Um, and sort of we're like, well, actually, you need to make a profit. You need to do good in order to kind of be sustainable. And, you know, this is the way the world is working. And now even, you know, in our business lab, we deal with so many not-for-profits who are going through that struggle of actually just trying to break even, you know, just trying to get through government funding is no longer there like it once used to be. And they're trying to work out how to be self-sustainable. Um, and obviously going down the social enterprise route is one way of doing that. Um, a very different mindset to what we had 10 odd years ago. And, and how do you, because I think people hear that word, but they don't necessarily know what that means. How do you define social enterprise? Is it a not-for-profit that finds a way to sort of fund itself, yeah. but not make a surplus? Or is it a for-profit company that basically is very philanthropic and kind of donates away the profit? Yeah, so there's two ways of social enterprise. So one is a not-for-profit company that operates a business. Um, so rather than just delivering service, actually operates a business. So a good example um, is like Thank You Water, for mm-hmm. example. You know, they... Or um, Tom Shoes, they, those or, sort Yeah, Tom yeah. Shoes yeah. or Street, um, which is a not-for-profit um, kind of cafe. And they have a social aspect by employing those who have homeless or uh, mm-hmm. have drug habits or have come from backgrounds of that sort. So, yeah, there are really two schools of thought. One is a, the not-for-profit aspect. So they're registered as a not-for-profit, um, as a company that's by guarantee often, um, but that they are running a commercial-style enterprise, such as a cafe. Um, but any money that they make goes gets reinvested back. So there is no profit because there is no shareholders. Um, there's only a member, and that member can't profit from the business. There's the other side of it, which is the for-profit um, model, uh, of a for-profit company who has a positive social aspect. So Tom Shoes is a good example. Every pair of shoes, you're going to get another pair of shoes that get donated. Um, that's the positive aspect of a for-profit company. So really, overarchingly, whether it's a for-profit or not-for-profit, it just needs to have a socially good or social positive advantage um, over a traditional um, company, which I think you could say arguably that actually most businesses these days are social enterprises because we're seeing, you know, particularly millennial driver behind doing more positive good out of business. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that sort of blurriness is sort of, again, where some get confused, but you're right. It's sort of, it's all encompassing and quite a few different ways to do that. So, so that was the first one, which didn't sort of take off. And then what about the second one? Yeah. I mean, we did that for a little while and um, for our 12 months uh, kind of efforts. Uh, And this is all while we were kind of, some of us are studying, some of us are working Mm -hmm. and doing different things. Um, we then, with another two friends, started a uh, removal business, um, which was like a removal logistics style. And the idea was we would, again, this is before, this is when eBay and Gumtree are kind mm. of just coming you know, to the front. Like nowadays, it's kind of like everyone can be a courier. You know, we have Uber. Yeah, of course. can do that. But then it wasn't really, there was no app that you could just pick something up. Um, and so leveraging off Gumtree and eBay, mm-hmm. would actually have a van who would kind of, you know, people could hire out. Um, you know, either single-use vans or somebody could um, you know, say, I'm moving my one-bedroom apartment, can you move me from St Kilda to South Yarra? Um, and we would do that. Or someone might say, I've got a fridge delivery that I bought on Gumtree, can you go pick up the fridge and drop it off? Um, small-scale removal logistics-style uh, business, which um, two of us uh, had a very active role and one was kind of, you know, the driver, the person doing mm-hmm. the grunt work. Uh, unfortunately, didn't quite work out with him so therefore we really struggled from replacing somebody do the day-to-day aspect of it i was working as a lawyer full-time my business partner was an accountant working in accounting firm full-time <laughs> um and so we had no choice but to kind of um you know ultimately sell the assets of that business mm-hmm. which meant we didn't lose any money which is uh really positive um 
Then after that was a healthy food vending machine, mm-hmm. um, which we partnered with a, a Melbourne cafe uh, and had a vending machine top end of the city, um, which essentially was the first uh, healthy food vending machine. So that was fresh produce put into the machine twice a day, mm-hmm. breakfast run in the morning and a lunch run um, just before lunch. So yogurts, mueslis, um, you know, perishable goods yeah, perishable. that needed to be kind of in and out every day. Focaccias, baguettes, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was a great little business, um, and ultimately was taken then by the the partner that we were working with in that. Um, what, what do you mean they, they bought you out? They yeah, so I came to an arrangement. In terms of, yeah. it, it made sense that we had proven a business model for them to um, kind of essentially grow their business. Um, and then but you didn't consider that as like something you could replicate across other yeah, locations, definitely could. or it just but again like twenty. Four years of age. Um, again, two of my friends were investment bankers. Mm. I was a lawyer. You know, trying to juggle that and start a business at the same time. Um, having done it a couple of times already, it was just like this is harder than it seems. And mm. um, you know, work big hours as a lawyer. They work massive hours as investment bankers. Um, it just, yeah, wasn't going to be fruitful. Um, as you know, I learned very quickly. You either need to give it everything, or you don't. Having a side hustle sounds exciting, um, but actually, it can very quickly take up a lot of time and effort and energy. Um, and at some point, you need to make a decision as to which way you're going to go. You either give up your full time job to actually run a business, or you kind of just struggle with the truth for some period of time, or you have to let one go. Um, and when did you finally sort of make that leap? Was it when you started Law Square that you sort of went yeah. all in? And Yeah, so Law Square was probably, so anyway, a couple of other businesses after that, but Law Square was really the first business where I was all in. Um, I had made some money out of um, a sale from a previous business, and I kind of had identified that I really didn't love being a lawyer anymore, and I wanted to do something else. At the same time, though, I would, you know, I like to think that I was relatively a good lawyer. Um, I had a strong network and a good um, skill set that I could really leverage into creating a, a better way and a different law firm to work with other entrepreneurs. Um, I suppose I identified that there wasn't any real law firm in this space working with entrepreneurs and kind of just portraying themselves as that market. Now there are lots of them that have popped mm. up across the place, but um, at the time we were kind of really one of the first um and that was the first time that I actually gone all in, you know, left my job kind of and started from scratch, committed everything I had to starting a business um, and, you know, back to basics of writing a business plan and trying to work out how to um, get clients and register an email address and work with the designer to get a logo created and all those types of things. Um, but yeah, definitely the first business that I kind of threw everything at. And what about all the previous ones? Why you didn't see the same traction, you didn't have the same commitment? What would you think was the difference between the ones you did in your free time and the ones yeah. you, and when you finally went all in? Yeah, uh, I'd say passion and purpose mm-hmm. is probably the key one. And so I was, I always say I was in those businesses to make money. Uh, I was never in those businesses because I truly believed in what I was doing. It was always as an alternative to law, mm-hmm. um, which I very quickly have worked out. Well, not quickly, it took me 10 years um, and quite a bit of money. Uh, to work out that actually you need to be passionate and excited by what you're doing mm-hmm. and the, the driver can't be money. Um, because the sole driver is money, very quickly you become disenfranchised or you're only chasing money um, rather than in the hard days, you know, when you're truly passionate about something, that's what keeps you going um, rather than if you keep losing money, you know, it's very quickly a deterrent. Yeah, so definitely passion, Uh I would say 100% is the thing that uh, killed other businesses. Yeah. And it, 
it sounds like originally you're sort of almost running away from law, right? Yeah. You're looking for the vending machine to have <laughs> yeah. 500 locations Correct. and everyone yeah. makes $500 a day and then you quit the law job. <laughs> but it's somewhat ironic, I guess, eventually you realise you did still like law. Maybe yeah. it was just the types of firms you're working in, the type of work you're doing, was it that sort of made you yeah. think that it was law you didn't like versus um, the work you were doing perhaps? Absolutely. Um, it's ironic that I had created businesses to get me out of law and then actually the one business that I did create that's kept me back in law is a law firm. Um, get oh, me got you out of the got original. Got me out of the, <laughs> out of the original own, but into my own. One of your own design, I and suppose. I, yeah, yeah, and you know, yeah. definitely when I started um, just with the idea, it was just like what are the things that I haven't enjoyed about the firms that I've worked at but also what are so many of my friends have left law. You know, mm. If I think of all the colleagues I went to uni with, I would say less than half are still practicing as lawyers mm. now. Um, that's big numbers, you know, and that's yeah, because it's not a trivial of investment of time and money and effort yeah. to to get a law degree and then to get a job, but <laughs> then get a, a job firm. and stay there. So and it's sort of again, fifty percent of that already filtered down group is actually a huge percentage. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so, really, it's kind of and there's a whole range of reasons for that, and you know, we speak quite publicly about some of the issues that traditionally have been faced mm-hmm. by some of those traditional law firms and the need for change around culture and removing time recording and financial metrics as a measure of performance. Um, but these are all drivers which ultimately lead people to leave law altogether. Um, really, it was about creating a culture and creating an environment where lawyers wanted to be working, where lawyers wanted to kind of be part of, but also that made lawyers happy. Ultimately, you invest enough time and effort and energy and culture into your people, then, you know, the rest speaks for itself. Um, yes, we are client-focused, but actually we much focus, spend a lot of time and energy on our lawyers because if they're happy, then automatically they're going to make the clients happy. Automatically they want to be in that environment. They want to be working. They want to be successful. Um, and that's only going to have a positive flow and effect to clients. Mm. And did you pick entrepreneurs as a client base because they're less stuck in the sort of old law firm ways or, like I said, other reasons, your own experience as an entrepreneur that drove that decision to focus on yeah, that? Yeah, a couple of reasons. Um, one, um, I spoke to a number of people who were disenfranchised by working with much older lawyers. Mm-hmm. And so you have a 25, 30, 35-year-old entrepreneur who's really excited and energetic and kind of almost a bit risk-free um, and just happy to kind of take the plunge often getting advice from older, you know, risk-adverse uh, lawyers and therefore not necessarily seeing eye-to-eye. It's changing, thankfully. Mm. Um, but traditionally, that's kind of the engagement, you know, um, sitting in an ivory tower somewhere, offering advice, looking down, as opposed to somebody who's been on the ground up. I suppose I took my experience as an entrepreneur and having raised capital, had investors, lost money, you know, sold businesses, folded businesses, um, and took that experience and thought, well, actually, you know, I just want to work with people who've gone through that. I know that people see the benefit of having somebody who has gone through that experience. And um, as it seems, you know, over the last almost three years now, people have really valued that experience. The fact that I can say that I've actually gone through that capital raise journey. I've gone through the process of liquidating a company. I've gone through the process of having to decide just it's not working. Um, And having those real conversations with myself, um, clients value that because it's real experience. Um, you know, then instilling that kind of method and model into my team um, is really important as well. Then they ultimately can translate that to clients. Yeah, and it's obviously worked very well as you grew 77% last financial year, doing, yeah. you know, 1.6 million in turnover for a, you know, a small, fast-growing law firm. That's yeah. excellent. Um, and so what was the driver behind that sort of sudden growth and that really big growth spurt, do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think... 
we spent a lot of time invested in working with you know the community, so co-working spaces, universities, accelerator programs, incubator programs, um, and push a very clear message about the work that we do and who we work with. And I think you know we have a really strong referral base, and that has just allowed us to grow um, quite rapidly, as you say. <coughs> Pardon me. Um, and so, really, I think the testament of um, that growth is just the positive referral network that we have built um, and really clients identifying that there is a law firm that understands their needs. There is a law firm that, um, you know, is not made of, and again, not that having a firm full of old partners is a bad thing <laughs> at all, but, you know, we're very clear in terms of the client base that we work with and we know what the parameters are of those clients because they want to work with somebody of like mind. You know, we're not targeting BHP and Rios mm. and, you know, big multinational companies. You know, we are trying to work with um, those small to medium to large enterprises who are being run by similar age people um, who want to change that engagement. And, and what are the main things you're helping them with? Again, like sort of all the, the whole suite of legal services that yeah. a startup needs or is there a particular area of the sort of uh, law that you... Yeah, so on? we run a general commercial practice, which mm-hmm. means that we can cover most of, you know... Um, the commercial needs of a, a client. So we have a commercial law team and they focus on all your, um, you know, contractual drafting, negotiations, intellectual property, privacy, data, security. That comes under our commercial team. We have a corporate team deal with um, capital raising work largely, shareholders, directors, discussions, deeds, agreements. Um, we have a litigation team deal with disputes. So it can be shareholder disputes, director disputes, founder disputes, um, even debt and asset recovery um, disputes, general commercial um, claims. Um, we also have an employment workplace relations team. So again, dealing with the hiring, the firing, the managing, managing of employees, um, do a lot of work in that space. And I suppose then the last uh, piece to our puzzle is um, a technology product called Cube by Law Squared, um, and that is a product focused on early stage startups. So, um, you know, under a million dollars in revenue, less than five employees who really just want some of that, um, uh, some of those early needed documents, so either shareholders agreements or basic employment agreements, intern agreements, um, terms of service for a website, etc. Then we have a very specific product uh, catered for early stage startups. Um, and then the idea is that as companies are bigger and need more ad hoc legal support, then you know the breadth of the teams in Law Squared can really help support them. So, so that product is like you're saying, templates, sort of checklists, things like that. that yeah, so no templates. Um, it requires legal engagement. So a lawyer sits on either side um, of that, and there are some automated paths to that engagement. But really, it's about creating simple, easy to read, easy to use legal documents mm-hmm. um, for those startups having legal support. So it's not a function whereby you can just go online, you know, say, I want a shareholders agreement, pay for it and download. It actually, you must have an interview with a lawyer first and then go through mm-hmm. that journey. So it allows for a bit of a vetting process. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, uh, adds that point of difference to know that there is a lawyer there at either end of that transaction and that it's not just a download and click template. Yeah. Nice. And so, obviously, the, the hard part of rapid growth, or one of the hard parts, is ramping up the staff because it's yeah. a you know a professional service firm. Mm. So, how did you find that you're getting this rapid growth, all these great referrals, all these whole channels of co-working space, all these mm. people who are coming to you, and then you've got a, a unique culture, like you said, no timesheets, flexible work, lots of other things, which you can't just sort of unplug someone from another law firm and drop them in and they yeah. know um, how it all works. You've got all the bad habits of the opposite end of town. Correct. How did you find that sort of hiring and, and service delivery side of the, yeah. the growth? 
super challenging. Um, finding people has been a really uh, difficult part because, um, like you say, it's a very different model. So uh, having people who are, you know, have that background of being traditional law firms whilst they love the idea of what our culture and our firm breeds, actually it's quite frightening because it's so vastly different to what they're used to. Um, but we're really fortunate to have a really strong team. There is 19 of us uh, at the moment, which is scary. <laughs> um, but... Um, you know, we've worked really hard on building that culture, getting that right team, getting the right people with the right mindset. Ultimately, mm. it's about having the right approach, and the right mindset to being in a business like this. Um, but yeah, definitely finding people has uh, not been easy. Yeah. And so what parts of the mindset? I mean, are you almost more eager to sort of hire someone who has less of that sort of experience, has less bad habits, and you sort of start them sort of fresh? Or are you getting people that are experienced, but they're, they're fed up and it's a breath of fresh air to let go of all the old habits? I yeah, have? I think we're getting a lot of those with the experience who are fed up with the old habits and ready for a better way and also just identify that there is a better way. I mean... Three years doesn't sound like a long time, but a lot has happened in the legal mm. landscape in three years. Um, the noise around kind of new firms and doing things differently and agile working and flexible working and leveraging technology have all really been a buzz over the last few years, whereas they didn't previously exist. So those from traditional law firms, you know, kind of three, four years ago, really kind of dismissed a lot of this. But now because of all the buzz, of all the noise, they're really identifying that actually there is a different way of working um, and that makes them now more open and susceptible to work into a firm like this. Yeah, and I think it's sort of there's a similar journey or transition happening like accounting firms. Yeah. A lot of them are going upfront, value-based pricing, mm-hmm. advisory less, billing, six minutes in arrears, big firm, traditional. Yeah. So sort of both industries are obviously very tightly linked and they're mm-hmm. both, like you said, going through this big evolution, which yeah. is really interesting to watch. Yeah, it's, it's interesting and super exciting. Um, you know, there's lots of change happening in the industry at the moment, um, lots of noise in the industry. So people saying they're doing things but not actually doing mm-hmm. things. Uh, but there's a lot of opportunity in the industry. Yeah. And do you see a lot of that is the clients are fed up the most, the staff are fed up the most, just a big gap at kind of the bottom end of yeah. the, you know, smaller businesses, all three? Where, where do you yeah, see Yeah, I think all three. Um, I think it started by clients driving it, but ultimately it's ended up because lawyers are actually getting fed up of the environments they're in. And so as you have some bigger firms who are losing some key staff and losing teams, and you're mm-hmm. seeing teams jump across to other law firms at the moment, um, that is then causing law firms and partners to kind of reassess their business model, reassess their way of working, their way of thinking, and go, right, if we want to be, you know, at the forefront of this change and also want to be around in the next kind of four or five years, then we too need to um, think about the way that we run our businesses. So um, that's slowly coming around. It's changing. Um, and again, it's a really exciting opportunity. Um, but yeah, definitely the drive came from clients first around overcharging mm-hmm. largely and dissatisfaction with client, uh, lawyers being you know, unresponsive and mm. bad communicators and expensive and inefficient <laughs> um, that has then led lawyers to actually go actually no well just because it's always been like this in the industry doesn't mean that's the norm doesn't mean that's okay either mm. and slowly the lawyers and starting to push as well nice and so a big theme through, I think, your whole sort of journey is negotiation. So obviously a lot of what a diplomat does or in <laughs> yeah. that sort of pathway is negotiating with people at very high stakes, but, you know, sort yeah. of behind closed doors. And then, um, you know, what lawyers do is a lot of negotiation. Then entrepreneurs is, you know, endless sort of sales negotiation. Um, I, I think I've seen online you do workshops on negotiation. Yeah, obviously you've spent, you know, a few decades yourself <laughs> honing your negotiation skills. Yeah. So, so. When did you first sort of start to develop? Were you the sort of the nine-year-old being good arguing with your parents <laughs> or your siblings? Or, yeah. or how did it sort of begin? And then how have you continued to improve your negotiation yeah. skills? Um, 
interesting my dad used to always say to me as a kid he was like stop answering back you know I was just like I'm not I'm just arguing you know, I'm just putting a different perspective forward uh, and so I'd probably always a bit of a, uh, a negotiator I suppose um, but I think being a litigation lawyer definitely taught me all those key skills around negotiation and um, I was very fortunate at my very first law firm that they gave me the opportunity to actually run my own mediations run a lot of my applications um, and not brief them out so traditionally the lawyer will prepare everything but then submit it to a barrister who will kind of do the advocacy work um i was very fortunate in my career in both firms actually to be given an opportunity to do it myself and not have to brief out and so therefore i learned uh, really strong advocacy skills um but also the skill of negotiating particularly in a mediation when you're acting for very large companies um and they're often always negotiating against um either other side solicitors but in a mediation particularly with a barrister um these are highly skilled professional um you know individuals who get paid to do this day in day out and so um i think i definitely built a skill set out of that i mean negotiation uh everybody can negotiate uh it just depends on what their style is and people take some take super aggressive style some take kind of more consultative style um yeah it really just depends on what works with you and your personality but um one thing that we have seen is that a lot of clients we work with particularly in the tech space kind of really struggle with kind of asking for things um and just take what service providers say is given mm-hmm. um but also then struggle both from a management perspective negotiating with staff negotiating with suppliers um, and so we do quite a lot of education around how do you get the confidence, if you like, in your leadership style and your management style in terms of just negotiating. And, um, and that's not, not always to get a better deal. It's actually get a fair outcome for everyone. Mm. Yeah. And, and how did that change? So you went, like I said, you were mediating where there's – you are obviously got a lot of skin in the game because mm. you want the, your client to get the result, but you're yeah. still not personally in it. Mm. When that swapped to you running your early businesses and it was you negotiating for yourself, yeah. not – for your client, how did that sort of change or did it? I feel like my approach is always still the same because um, ultimately you're just trying to get an outcome mm. uh, and you want to meet somewhere in, you know, not always in the middle, but you kind of want, uh, you know, believe in a fair negotiation. Mm. Um, nobody should be screwed over. There is a saying in negotiation that, um, you know, it's successful when everybody leaves unhappy. Mm. And so if one person leaves happy, then actually it means that the other side are unhappy, which therefore there was a disparity in the middle. But if both leave unhappy, then actually there's probably some success there because neither of them feel like they were successful. Um, it's a really interesting way to look at um, that negotiation style because people always go in there wanting everything, you know, mm. going in there for the lot and therefore they need to suffer from the rest of it. Um, Again, negotiation shouldn't be combative. I'm not a big believer in combative negotiations. And definitely um, in business, it uh, helps to not be combative, you know, be as open and welcoming and, uh, as you can be because, you know, we are fortunate, I say, in Victoria, particularly, uh, actually, Australia, have a really open, you know, entrepreneurship community and mm-hmm. uh, innovation uh, community where people really want to help each other. And, um, you know, you take advantage of that. It's actually a small community and people very quickly identify who is good, who is not so good, and who is in it for themselves, um, you want to be one of the good ones. Mm. Yeah. And, and so the other things, like you said, some people just don't negotiate. Again, mm. they, they're given a contract, they're given something, they're just an employment yeah. offer, and they just take it. So they're, they're just not even engaging in the, what about this, the, yeah. the initial steps of you know making a conversation. Mm. 
Um, and then you said some people are sort of maybe they know they should, but they're afraid to. Yeah. Um, apart from that, what other things do you think maybe people are doing wrong in a negotiation or maybe they're an okay negotiator, but they want to get better that they should do to, to yeah. improve their negotiation skills? Just a lot of people don't think about it, you know. People don't actually prepare for a negotiation uh, or prepare. And any discussion you have really can become a negotiation. Um, again, it shouldn't be combative, but people need to be very clear about the approach they're going to take, um, you know, one thing we all hate is, you know, shuffle negotiation, right? Where you kind of, someone starts at $100,000 and we, let's say it's money, $100,000, someone starts at zero, mm. you know, shuffle, 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 and you're up in the middle of somewhere. Like, mm. you probably wasted a day trying to do that. Um, no one gets brownie points for doing that. Um, you know, always go in there with a very clear plan, understand where your position is. Also know where your final limits are. Um, people aren't very good at identifying that. Um, I think it's practice, you know. There are lots of workshops and um not only that we run, but that other um, kind of companies run around some of those key skills around negotiation that just people need to get better at for all aspects of their lives, personal and professional. Um, it's a really key, important skill. And are there, like, there's all the obvious sort of ones in business, like, again, staffing, supplies. Are there things that you think some people think can't be negotiated or they don't see as a negotiation, which you um, do sort of look at or...? Uh, I mean, you know, there are room for negotiation, right? Like no point in walking into Maya trying to negotiate <laughs> a, a shirt which has uh, got a tag price on it. But I think in business, you know, most things are negotiable uh, and you should be open to those negotiations from all aspects of, you know, from either dealing with your team, dealing with suppliers, dealing with clients. Um, it helps for a healthy relationship, I think, yeah. And what about sort of when you're hiring? Do you look for people that have an existing aptitude to negotiation or again a lot of them if they've worked in law they have or are you looking for people that are willing to learn and you do a lot of in-house training on improving their skills yeah it depends on what their skill set is uh, required and also what type of team you know we want them obviously we want our litigation lawyers to be good mm. negotiators um, similarly you want your commercial lawyers to be good negotiators because they are often negotiating contracts on behalf of um, clients so definitely negotiation is a key skill as a lawyer um, and one that uh, is often well taught at universities but some fresher that definitely needed and we spend a lot of time you know training in-house around that oh nice mm. um all right so so stepping back a little bit out of the legal profession you do a lot of work with entrepreneurs entrepreneurial mm. clients um what trends do you see in entrepreneurship in australia um you know what things are companies doing well and what could they maybe do better or learn from you know the, the global entrepreneurial scene mm. Yeah, um, I mean, we've got a great community, like I said before, so people are doing really well at working together and, um, you know, helping each other out. Um, we see service providers who are offering a lot of free advice, which has been really positive to see and helping people on their way. Um, but similarly, we're seeing companies that otherwise would be in competition with each other actually trying to help each other out because they all identify that they need each other's support to get somewhere. Um Everyone's looking for money, you know. Entrepreneurship is often about who's raising cash, who's trying to kind of get ahead of the others, and um, it's quite a tight market for raising money. Um, has been for the last twelve months, and I suspect it's probably going to be another twelve months of uh, hard slog in terms of raising money. Um, people need to be realistic. I think there is a lot of unrealistic expectations about um, creating unicorn businesses, which it's bloody hard, you know. Um, we only hear the success stories, but even then, there's not so many mm. of them. And that's why um, they're called unicorns, right? Not horses. That's why they're called unicorns, <laughs> not horses, yeah. And, you know, I think people need to identify there's actually nothing wrong with being a horse, you mm. know. Um, you can be a donkey or you can be a horse. <laughs> you definitely want to be a horse. 
Um, you know, people are often in business for the wrong reasons mm. as well. And I, I put my hand up and say that I was in the past, which was just for money. Um, often you are not fulfilled. You're not getting what you want out of it. You're not achieving something day in, day out. And people often see through that. If you're purely in business to make money and there's no true driver and passion behind what it is you're creating, you'll one, very quickly become disenfranchised. Two, be very hard to get your team buy-in for that. Um, because ultimately they see this as a flip opportunity, right? We see so many businesses in Australia, particularly, that are just flip. You know, mm. people are going to go, right, I'm here for three years, I want to sell to my biggest competitor, or I'm mm. going to sell back to the business that I left because I'm creating a solution for them, all those types of things. They often end up disenfranchising their team mm. because, you know, their team obviously see a short-lived, um, you know, potential experience and not necessarily what they want. Um so I think that's definitely an issue that we have. You know, we, we chase the Silicon Valley dream, I think, mm-hmm. but even Silicon Valley is changing, uh, but we haven't quite worked that out yet. So, you know, see business as an opportunity for growth, personal development, um, and as an opportunity to kind of grow a legacy and grow something really important, sustainable, and sure, take the opportunity for any acquisitions and capital raisings, et cetera, but um, really you should have a key purpose behind your business other than just making money. Yeah, and so like you said, in your early businesses, that really was your focus. So was your goal sort of make a million, buy a house, cash out? Was it make, you know, what was your sort of initial financial goal that motivated you on top of a heavy full-time job to to seek these other uh, money-making sort of businesses? Yeah, I think at the time, a bit blindedly, it was to get me out of my full-time job. Mm -hmm. And so it wasn't even to make a certain cash amount or a dollar amount. It was just enough money to get me out of what I was doing to then give me the opportunity to do something else. But I probably hadn't really thought about that very well, you know. And I think that's just an age thing. I was mm. 20, 21, um, you know, even my second and third business was 23, you know, still quite young mm. um, and naive. But definitely being in those businesses taught me a whole bunch of things that I would never otherwise have learned, you know, a very wide and varied skill set. <laughs> um, and that's only been because of uh, all the businesses that I've been part of and that I've um, kind of helped create from scratch. Um, I otherwise wouldn't have that skill set, Yeah. Yeah, and, and like I think for a lot of people, it's an evolution they have to sort of go through almost. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Um, because if someone told you at 20, it's not about the money, you yeah. probably would have ignored it's them. It's all about the cash. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and, and, but how did you personally make that transition? Was it the repeated sort of businesses not taking off? Was yeah. it extra years in the, a job you didn't enjoy? Mm. When did you sort of flip to, like said, a more purpose-focused business instead of a... Yeah, um, I think identify having lost a bit of money that actually just spending money to make money isn't always going to get you there. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the looking back about three years into Law Squared, you know, I'm a much happier person. You know, mm-hmm. I work harder than I've ever had, uh, than I've ever worked. Um, I make less money than <laughs> I've ever made. Not ever made, but you know what I mean. Um, yeah. Always as an entrepreneur, you pay yourself much less than uh, before, but all of a sudden my outlook on everything I do is much greater and better. It's because I have clarity, I have purpose, um, and I'm driven every day to achieve something. Um, and that's not a financial goal. That is actually, um, you know, growing successful business goal. Um, so, that's and success doesn't always mean money either. Mm. That's another important factor. So it's just experience. It's just mm. time that kind of and in, that leads you to go. Aha! Uh-huh, that was wrong. I shouldn't have done that. You know, that was the wrong approach to take into starting that business. I had zero skill set um, in consulting. You know, let mm. alone zero skill set in running a removal company and mm. trying to kind of quote jobs that I had no idea what we were doing. But we gave it a go. You know, mm. ultimately that's. You know, as much as we love to celebrate the failure success, you know, that is what kind of gives you that skill set. Yeah. Yeah, nice. Um, 
And so we've sort of covered a little bit, but outside of that, what advice would you give your sort of 20-year-old self now looking back? So you've mentioned the sort of focusing on purpose um, and not just the finances. Yeah. Um, what other advice would you give sort of the 20-year-old you having, again, been on quite a career arc mm-hmm. and a life sort of arc? I probably wouldn't have listened to it, but um, <laughs> definitely I would have given myself the advice around, you know, find your passion and find your purpose behind what it is you're trying to achieve. Um, <coughs> also slow down. You know, like I feel like the other thing that uh, the innovation entrepreneurship space here in Australia, it's about quick turnaround, you know, Mm -hmm. and things take time. You know, we're surrounded by technology. Um, Things ping every second. We get anxiety when they don't (laughs) ping after three seconds. Um, Everything is instant, you know, Mm -hmm. Uh, and... I think slowly, though, we're, slowly, we're starting to realise that instant isn't good anymore and it's not as good as it used to be. Um, having the time to think about things and actually plan things and not be reactive um, but be proactive is critical. And I wish I had uh, realised that rather than just chasing a dream of making money, um, again, which I now completely understand and accept was a flawed theory. Yeah. Mm. And it's a really good point, like saying about sort of responsiveness and being, having your attention sort of taken away from you regularly. How do you juggle that with being in a client service business that almost in some ways your selling point yeah. is your responsiveness yeah. and, and the differentiators and the this we're getting sued, we're going bankrupt, you know, some big legal matter mm. um, which requires a lot of responsiveness and, and sort of how do you balance those two sides? Of, yeah, of I suck at it. <laughs> uh, absolutely suck at it and I um, am always trying to work out better ways and that is just take some time out for myself. So, you mm-hmm. know, waking up early, going for a run, you know, spending an hour doing yoga or, you know, going to the gym in the afternoons but setting certain periods of time of the day where I'm disconnected from my phone and that's not for long periods of time mm-hmm. but long enough, you know, yeah. the world isn't going to end in an hour. Um, it might end in two but it's not going to end <laughs> in an hour. Um but also building a team, you know, mm. knowing there are other people connected at various points to know that they're there to respond mm. um, in the event something is to go horribly wrong. So, um, yeah, I don't have the magic formula to that. And I wish I did. Um, but you're right. You know, people expect. I mean, the other day I had three missed calls, a text message mm. and a WhatsApp message all from the same person <laughs> within an hour. Yeah. You know, yeah. and it was nothing urgent. Mm. You just want to speak to me. It's just yeah. like try three different mediums to get to me um, in an hour. You know, yeah. it just shows... Just the level sometimes of um, unreasonableness that people portray and that they expect you to be available consistently. Um, as service providers, we need to set some of those parameters. Um, as we try and promote flexible working mm-hmm. and, you know, people having some form of balance in their lives or flexibility in their lives, we really need to understand what some of those parameters are. And, and I guess that's the other side of sort of managing it. Like I said, it's not just the instant responsiveness, but there's also the clients in the law wanting sort of out-of-hours responsiveness. Yeah. Um, so maybe they don't want it straight away, but it's Saturday morning, they want something by Saturday night. How do you juggle that with also being an employer that focuses on responsive sort of uh, service, but flexible sort of employee-friendly work life, which yeah. law isn't uh, famous for providing? Law is not famous <laughs> for providing. Um, so again, how, how about that sort of side? So you've got, like you said, instantaneous response, and what mm-hmm. about sort of the out-of-hours on the holidays, on the weekends, sort of nature of law sometimes? Yeah, so I encourage my team to switch off on weekends uh, and while they're away. I mean, people often kind of just check in or see their emails or see what's happening, and we saw that over the break as well, just some people just checking emails, which I'm totally fine mm. with, you know, like... There isn't necessarily a clear line anymore between work and life, and I think uh, to 
switch off completely is a bit unrealistic and not that I'm asking people to be connected consistently, but I feel like people just naturally have a driven tendency towards just checking. I mean, we all do it. We're just mm. laying there at midnight on a Saturday night. But I'll check yeah. my emails. Like, no one's emailing you at 11 o'clock on a Saturday night. Um, but, you know, I mean, I certainly do it as an mm. entrepreneur and I'm sure others do as well. Um, I'm probably not, again, not very good at kind of I'm good at saying to others don't do it um, I'm great at saying to my team get off your emails on the weekend but I'm not so good at doing that um, but again something that I just need to get better at right you need to identify that you want to get better at it um, the other thing though is setting very clear client expectations mm-hmm. so um, if a client is being so unreasonable that they want something on Saturday morning for Saturday night then that's just unreasonable mm-hmm. you know it's not necessarily a client that we want to work with um, Obviously, there are circumstances where there are transactions and there are things happening and we know, then that's fine because the expectation is there, you know? We've set those parameters very early on in the engagement. The team are aware, I'm aware, the client is aware. And yes, there are times where we are switched on, you know, 20 hours in a day and that's because the transaction might demand Mm. it. Um, But that's fine because the expectation is set there and then we can kind of work out with the team how they can get some chill time and time away from the office thereafter. We certainly don't believe in a model where you run it, you know, consistent 20 hours Mm. um, as some law firms do and not only law firms, accounting firms, investment bankers, you know, a lot of professional services. But I'm a big believer in that. It's sort of a business model almost, right? Yeah, exactly. Pay for 40 hours at this wage, work 90 hours. 90 hours. Yeah, it's a flawed logic because you burn people out, people get disenfranchised. And so, you know, we've had some very serious and large transactions which have required the team sometimes to be here later than usual mm. or be connected on a weekend. Um, but, you know, we always then, people either take additional leave or mm. you know, people go away, whatever it might be, um, to try and balance that out. If people enjoy what they do, then they don't mind it. And so long as the expectation is set early, then that's really important. Mm. And, and what about Law Squared in the future, in the next sort of five to ten years? What are your plans, vision, goals? Yeah. Again, not that you can plan that sort of far out, but what's yeah. the, the long-range picture for Law Squared? Yeah, I mean, it's hard. If you had said to me three years ago, where do you want to be in ten years? I would have said, you know, maybe 10, 15 people um, you know, with offices in Melbourne and Sydney. Mm-hmm. Um, fast forward, you know, three years, we have 19 people, Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane. Uh, so it's kind of consistently changing. For me, the legal landscape is changing so much. Uh, demands from clients are changing a lot. Um, expectations from the profession are also slowly starting to change as well. So I think it's hard to dictate where a business like ours will be in a few years' time, but um, certainly I hope that we're around. Certainly I hope <laughs> that we are present and we have a really strong reputation. Um, I don't have any aspirations for large-scale 100, 200 employees. It's not what we're about. You know, we have really strong and big impact um, as a firm of the size mm-hmm. that we are. We have a strong reputation within the industry. Um, and I think we continue to do that. And that's really where I want to see us as a really strong, reputable brand in the next five, ten years. And would you be looking, like I said, to stay boutique, but, you know, go to Brisbane, go to Canberra, like, again, branch out, but keep each sort of office boutique or yeah, double I think, down on the existing So we've got location. Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane. I think that's all we would want to be. Okay. Yeah. Um, there's no immediate plans for anything else. But, again, who knows? I mean, had you said to me three years ago, <laughs> Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane, I would have laughed. Um, and so who knows where it will be. But really we're just kind of planning year on year and just ensuring that we can keep consistency, mm-hmm. you know, keep clients happy. We don't want a high turnover of clients, you know. We want to keep positive clients, happy clients, recurring clients. Um, that's the best recipe for us. Yeah, yeah and, and you've already got, I think, an interesting dabbling in this sort of tech plus human 
service, I guess yeah. you could call it that. Yeah, sure. I think a lot of the big firms seem to be playing in pure service, mm. right? They just do the service, they've done it for 100 years, yeah. mass scale. Same, same. Um, and then there are others in the pure tech space, like you said, click and put in your credit card, download an NDA, yeah. download an employment contract, you know, all that sort of yeah, starter yeah, yeah. kit, all low cost um, sort of commoditized advice. Mm. So this sort of hybrid, which yeah. I'm sure you're sort of uh, seeing as the future of there's a lot of tech helping the monotonous parts, yeah. but there's a human vetting being involved. Needs to be. Do you yeah. see that as sort of the whole firm in the future becoming almost that? Tech yeah. enabled plus human? For sure. I mean, our tagline for Q by Law Square is legal technology with the human touch. Mm-hmm. Um, and that really is, I think, the driver behind our firm, which is there are various parts of it which we can leverage technology, and we do. We you know, have a very strong tech focus in our business, but... Actually, we're dealing with people. We're dealing with mm. business owners day in, day out who are making both rational and financial and emotional decisions. Mm. Um, and therefore, we need to be able to adopt and you know, help them through that journey. And that human connection uh, is important. You know, no robot is going to be able to do that. No computer is going to be able to do that. Mm. But the other thing to identify is that there are certain clients that want different things. You know, there are clients who just want click in, get an NDA and click out. Yeah. You know, there are clients who don't want any of that and want you to sit here and draft an NDA with them. You know, we want to find that balance in the middle whereby we can leverage both that human interaction but also leverage technology to make things faster and more efficient. Um, yeah. And do you see other areas of law which that hasn't yet kind of taken off that you're looking to explore in the near future? Or? Uh, I think for us, like we've closed the loop on our, you know, kind of general commercial practice. There isn't really another practice area that would necessarily fit. Who knows? Again, that might change over time. But um, we've got a really sweet spot of commercial, corporate, litigation, employment, workplace relations. Um, and that kind of closes the loop for most of our commercial clients and the work that we do for them. Um, Again, there's been so much innovation, so much change in the legal landscape over the last kind of particularly three to five years that we see most um, areas of practice now having, you know, greater tech focuses. Um, You know, there's a lot of investment in access to justice, um, particularly, so both from a legal aid perspective uh, around greater technology, greater tools, greater accessibility, Mm -hmm. which I think is really important, yeah. So using technology, again, not just to help big, clients, entrepreneurs, but again, people yeah. that don't have access perhaps to Absolutely. legal services, but yeah, yeah, a technology yeah. enabling a cost, an entry point or a scale or a you know delivery method that enables more people access to the law. Yeah. I mean, some of the best technology, legal technology startups are in the access to justice space, which mm. I think are doing a tremendous job at really, you know, simple chatbot services, for mm-hmm. example, um, people might want just anonymous discussion. Um, mm-hmm. Family violence is a very good one. You know, there's some really uh, clever apps um, for victims of um, abuse mm-hmm. that can kind of get some legal support, um, you know, escape buttons, exit buttons to kind of, you know, disappear mm-hmm. if they're in danger. Um, you know, all these things that we're using legal technology to really help people who need it most. Yeah, yeah no, definitely an interesting, interesting space to watch. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, are there any final words, thoughts, comments you'd like no, to leave? No, that's it. I mean, you know, thanks for taking the time, obviously, for uh, being interested in our story, but it's been a really exciting and wild journey over the last three years. And yeah, I'm really excited to kind of see where it goes. Excellent. Thanks so much. That's right. Thanks for having me. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you for listening. I would really appreciate it if you subscribe to the podcast in iTunes and leave a review. Better yet, tell a friend about it who you think may enjoy the content and get something useful out of it. Feedback, comments, likes or dislikes, you can reach me by emailing Derek, D-E-R-E-K, at futureofaustralia.com or you can call or text me on 0404 689 897. Thank you.